The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So before we get into the restart, I wanted to have the cap father on, Larry Kuhn, because there are a ton of really interesting issues now. We had him on back in March. But now it's really becoming clear that fans are a dubious proposition for next season. And so we want to talk a little bit about what next season is going to look like. He he knows more about the CBA than anybody. And he's also uh, the headmaster at Sports Business Classroom. We're going to talk a little bit about that as well and what they're doing this year, which I will be a part of, of course, in a virtual sports business classroom since we can't do it in person this year, but it's going to be a really worthwhile program anyway. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, have I prevaricated enough here now, Larry? Can I introduce you? <laughs> go ahead. Go for the introduction. <laughs> I thought I thought I did already, but... Uh, You're the master yeah. of prevarication. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh what have you been doing this whole time by the way you for uh the last like working from home that is how's that been for you yeah so it turns out i have a day job and my day job is a lot tougher when i'm not you know actually at the day job so you know my day job is um i'm an it director with the university of california irvine we had to basically relocate the entire campus to remote and that not only means setting people up with you know all instruction happening remotely um all lab work that research work that couldn't take place in person had to be put on hold and then for us since i'm in it you know it's a matter of just getting all of our ourselves and all of our staffs uh transformed and now every meeting's got to happen over zoom rather than just be walking by somebody uh and saying hey where's that thing i asked for so it 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 really is tougher to run this thing uh when everybody's remote and you know that's taken 90 percent of my time now the good thing the flip side of that coin is that with with all this happening i didn't have to at the same time as all this was going on plan for an sbc in vegas which as <laughs> you know planning for that starts in like december and we're working pretty steadily all the way leading up to june in taking care of everything that has to happen in order to get an in-person at sports business classroom running we just had to put that on hold because we had no idea what was going to happen if if the league was going to restart if there was going to be a summer league if we were going to be able to hold sbc turns out there is not going to be a summer league at least not when scheduled and you know the league is just now restarting so and we're not 
even close to being ready to to open up in that kind of environment, bringing everybody together. So we made the decision fairly recently, because we were still on hold for a while, that we can still do SBC. It's got to be a virtual conference. So now we're rushing to get that all put, to, put together, get everybody registered for that. But I'm looking at that being a tremendous event. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. I'm excited to be involved once more here. But I want to talk now about what the NBA season, the 2021 season, is going to look like here. And one thing that's been in the news that I wanted to talk to you about is how they're really going to calculate the revenue. And there are a number of, of different components to that, but there's two uh, that really stuck out to me. One is if any of these teams get payments from insurance due to business interruption it's unclear whether that's going to happen or not the rockets actually the first team that we know of to actually sue their insurance company for not paying that if they do get insurance payout would that affect basketball related income if they're getting something to replace basketball related income from an insurance company is that something that the players should be getting a part of yeah i don't think that that's in there but i would think so i think that this substitutes for income right so this is is some of the of what they would consider revenue and they agreed that up and down they're entitled to 50 percent of the revenue uh, thereabouts now is there an argument that no this is not basketball related income because it's an insurance payoff but it's an insurance payoff specifically to cover a loss of that income so i think that this is something that they would come to an agreement on pretty quickly i, I don't think that that that's something that there's going to be a lot of controversy about even if it's not actually covered in the agreement today yeah you make a great point because for business interruption what you're really doing to prove your damages there is you're saying well here's the income that i would have made Uh so pay me to make up this income for me now you know if it's something like insurance payout where you know there was like a fire at the arena or something you know and they had to uh, rebuild part of the arena with insurance money that's a different category but this specifically to replace business income that is something where you i think it would be subject to that bri split as well the second question i had is and we don't have any public information on this but you know i I, there's an article that in i think it was in may that something like 42 percent of all business owners did not pay their rent in may and just due to not being open Mm -hmm. and i would imagine that nba teams would be trying to at least get rent reductions or just straight up not paying because they don't have the income and is that something that would become a factor in collective bargaining if in fact nba teams are not paying their rent and therefore have way lower expenses I don't think so. Just off the top of my head, I think that it's understood that the league is paying expenses and up or down, the players are getting their 49 to 51% of the revenues. Their their split is based on the revenues, not based on the expenses that the league has assumed to pay. So if in a normal year, if the league's expenses go down or up, well, their net is going to be higher or lower as a result. So I, you know, we, you made a good point that the league can't have it both ways they can't uh 
um, say that the income from insurance is qualifies as income for the purpose of getting the income, but then they say, no, it's not income for the purposes of sharing with players. The same thing goes here. You can't say that the revenue, the expenses are expenses for the, the purpose of, uh, you, you know, of, of their benefit, but not an expense in, in terms of what they represent to the players. Yeah. And I think even if it's not part of the revenue at a minimum, if you're like, oh, we can't survive, you guys have to take a haircut, blah, blah. You know, that's something that I'd be very interested in knowing the answer to as the players association. So yeah, I, I don't think yeah. anybody's going to be uh, making a ton of money next year. I think it's a matter of just controlling the bleeding as much as they possibly can this year. So, you know, it's they, they have to be acting accordingly. So next question I have for you is, let's start with this as a potential baseline let's say that maybe revenue for this year let's assume that the orlando bubble gets completed they get most of the tv money maybe there's a little bit of local tv money that didn't come in because the teams didn't get to 70 games which is a reported benchmark in some of these contracts Mm -hmm. so let's say and of course you're not going to have fan revenue for the playoffs let's say there's a reduction in revenue of 15 percent this season the the 1920 season what would that cause to happen to the salary cap next year just based under the agreement as it is now we know that's very likely going to be rewritten but as a baseline they make no changes at all how does that change the cap for next year well that's nuanced right because under a normal circumstances they base the cap next year on the revenue this year, on the well it's on the projections from next year which are typically based on the revenue for this year now yeah. with the revenue being down the projections for the cap next year at a literal reading would also be down by a commensurate amount the problem is the the revenue next year is going to be what it is if you know if let's say that the league is 100% healthy next year you know there's a vaccine that comes out tomorrow and everybody's over covid-19 by the by the start of the season next year and everybody's going to be able to come back healthy and they resume normal operations so let's say that next year it would be a normal year in terms of the revenue coming in that just means that this year was a poor predictor for what's going to happen next year and yeah. they say that in the CBA so when we talk about the CBA as it's written now it has a clause for situations like this when there is a big drop in revenues then they figure out what to do about it so by a literal reading of the CBA as it exists today this would trigger that and th- they're going to have to figure it out it, it already says they can't just go by what's written in the CBA because as Adam Silver said the CBA was not developed with a global pandemic in mind yeah yeah, and there's all you know. There's the force majeure that the NBA could trigger if they wanted to to just completely rip up the CBA because uh, games have been canceled this season. Um, but it's not, I think, because a lot of people are kind of analogizing this to, oh, this is kind of the reverse of what you had in 2016 when you had all this TV money coming in. And yeah, you know, they tried to negotiate smoothing. Uh, the Players Association didn't want to do it. The league didn't press very hard for it. They weren't willing to make any concessions. And so you had this big bump up. And so I think a lot of people analogize it to, oh, well, wouldn't something similar just naturally happen within the formula if there's a big reduction in revenue? But what you're telling us is, no, it's not that simple. You really, essentially, what the CBA says is you have to just negotiate what the cap is going to be. Yeah, there, there's a big drop in revenues clause in the CBA. There is not a big gain in revenues clause in the CBA, You know, unfortunately, for what happened in 2016, 17. Yeah, so uh, there really is just 
no formula at all to to have a big reduction in the cap if we go down this far there's it, no it just it yeah. just says you know we're in we're in charter territory and i think the overriding lesson here is that we can't apply previous assumptions for anything we we can't even say that the big market teams are going to be big market teams still we can't say yeah. we we can't say anything about what's going to happen because it's just a big unknown yeah that's one thing that uh Tim Bontemps and Brian Windhorse have talked about in their reporting, which is essentially you're going to have to figure out a new revenue sharing paradigm for all these teams because teams could have much different revenue. I mean, the Warriors are, are a great example. You know, their TV deal is pretty ancient. And so, you mm-hmm. know, they're not getting paid commensurate with what their success has been, you know, how big of a market they have. They did like a long extension, I think pretty soon after Joe Lacob bought the team when they still weren't any good. And so if they're not going to have any fans and then, you know, they also have like this arena that they built and that they're in theory would still have debt service on and they're have big expenses. And so all of a sudden they are not necessarily a big market team in terms of their profits and the revenue sharing would in theory have to reflect that, but there's going to need to be some sort of negotiation among the teams to figure that out. It seems like. Yeah. And then we have to talk about the elephant in the room, right? Which is the bubble is a big experiment and that experiment can go badly. And I think the odds of that happening, they're certainly greater than zero. And I'm not sure if they're even worse than a coin flip of this whole thing could blow up. And if that happens and we're in a situation where we don't know how to restart a league until a vaccine and herd immunity happen, what do we do for the next season, right? Because they there there would be no restart plan at that point. Yeah, that would be a, a major issue as well. Do you just like not do anything until then or, or do you try to play? Um, so the only, a couple of things have come out of kind of what the tentative plans and hopes are for next year. One is, that league insiders expect the cap to be set around the same as it is this year at 109 million. Now, if you have a 40% reduction in revenue for next year, and yeah, you might have normally a 10% escrow, that's going to lead to teams probably losing a lot of money um, if you still have to play the players 90% of what they're supposed to get, but you're only getting 60% of the revenue that you thought you were going to get. So that could be a, an issue. Then the second aspect of this is that rather than a 10% escrow, the escrow, for those who don't know, is basically you hold that in abeyance for the entire year. And then if revenues aren't high enough to for the players to have gotten all of what they're supposed to get in terms of salaries, then the owners get to keep that 10% of revenue. What they've suggested is, uh, Bontemps and Windhorse, that there could be a 20% escrow for next year. What is your opinion of that, just as as a overall observer, not taking sides, but just, do you think that that is a good solution? I think you're going to have to, because on, on one hand, I like the idea of keeping the cap where you would normally expect it to be, because that makes this year's free agency operate like last year's free agency. You know, it keeps some consistency in the free agent market. So if you have the bad luck of becoming a free agent in the wrong year, you're not completely screwed by that. Um, but the the escrow is the thing that's supposed to control for the variance in the revenues and making sure that the players get their guaranteed amount. They're guaranteed somewhere between 49 and 51 percent. And that's supposed to do fine adjustments. Of course, it doesn't um, handle a big drop in revenues. Again, the CBA wasn't created with this in mind. So if we're going to have a big one and we want to try to control 
it through escrow, then we need a bigger escrow pool. So you can kind of do the math backwards, right? It, let's say the revenue is going to be $6 billion. Well, the players are going to get about $3 billion, but their contracts are going to add up to a lot more than that. If they, if, if the contracts add up to $4 billion and the players, by virtue of their revenue split, are guaranteed $3 billion in a down year, then that means that the players have to give back a billion, which means that the escrow pool's got to be about 25%. You can kind of set it that way. Yeah, that that uh, makes sense to me. The one thing that, and maybe I'm missing something here, and I defer to you on these matters, of course, uh, as the cap father, but if you've got you know only a 20% escrow and revenues are down 40%, it seems to me like that would inevitably lead to the players getting still more than the 51% that they're supposed uh -huh. to. Is that how you see it or am I missing something there? That's absolutely it. So what you have to do is, is really do good projections on where you think the revenue is going to be and probably build in a, enough of a pad so that you think, you know, whatever, with the 90% confidence interval that the revenue is really going to fall within that. That interval and set the escrow accordingly. It may be a lot higher than 20%, 25% just to cover it because you're absolutely right. If they set the if they don't set the the escrow percentage high enough to fund that loss and then they keep the cap where it is so the contracts add up to a much higher amount and revenue comes in lower than what they were projecting, then the owners are going to eat. Now there's some stuff about the players making it up in the next year, but again, all those rules are out the window in the this new situation where they have to negotiate it but under normal circumstances it's not a good idea for to for the um, revenue not to be nearly enough to fund th that that variance in, in the end in, in the revenues yeah because I mean so to me if the players can can get the owners to agree to only a 20% escrow like that seems like kind of a big win for the players I would think so but again they could say in this circumstance if we undershoot then we have to make it up in the next year because you guys are guaranteed yeah. about half up or down and uh, us us um, overestimating what the revenues are going to be in an environment where everything is uncertain we have to share that risk which means if we undershoot this year and the, the owners are eating a significant amount of money then players you have to help make it up to us next year yeah and that's something obviously this reporting is very preliminary these negotiations are not at an advanced stage yet so there could be much more to this plan than is public right now and it would see because that just seems like kind of a bad deal for you know it's rare that i'd say that you know because you generally the uh owners uh, have done well in labor negotiations in all sports in the last 20-25 years or so um your you've been an observer of the league for a long time this is obviously unprecedented throw out what's reported publicly if you just had to design a system from scratch right now to deal with these potential losses in revenue when there's so much uncertainty going forward are there any things that you would recommend that maybe haven't been talked about from the league and player balance i think it's exactly what we talked about right yeah figure out your confidence interval on revenues and and set your escrow threshold accordingly i don't care if that's 50 percent. i don't care if it's even higher than that right this is this is an anomalous situation we have to do something where everybody's covered 
and it's not like you know if we set the the escrow percentage at the right amount it's not like the players don't get what they deserve and when everything is done right they're going to get their 50 percent of the revenue it's just how much do they get right now versus how much do we have to wait to see what we get and i think this yeah. year we have to err on the we got to wait and see what we get end of it from the team perspective you know from the from the league perspective of, of teams i think that that's equitable now from the individual team perspective you're talking about well if we end up with so much lower revenues the the tax you know we're going to come up with every team paying the tax and it's a progressive tax and they're all going to get killed and you're going to talk about um you, you know the, the I, and I think this was in the windhorst article right this yeah. is supposed to reward teams who do good long-term planning go back to what i said the underlying assumptions everything that we were projecting previously we have to throw out the window we're in a situation where we can't reward people for planning accordingly because you couldn't plan accordingly so i think we need to make it so that it's neutral for teams so we're not penalizing teams with an onerous luxury tax but also some teams are looking to lose the proceeds from the tax. Teams are looking at maybe losing from revenue sharing. So I think that, that the league um, independently has to come to an agreement with the teams to say, how are we going to make up for this between each other so that we're all taking an, a proportional hit and certain teams, because they would have been beneficiaries of, of some of this revenue sharing from other teams, aren't losing that. On the other hand, the teams that were expected to be paying a lot to other teams through revenue sharing who, hey, as it turns out, aren't getting that revenue, they're not hurt either. I think that that's basically the revenue sharing system has to be almost thrown out and redesigned just for this. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. And I I think really when you just have such an unprecedented situation, your goal should be, let's just try to bear all of these losses proportionally. Like let's not, mm -hmm. let's design a system to where, okay, nobody's going to be losing just like so much money, you know, right. like, like to where everybody can kind of weather this storm and then you can get back to business at a, a later time but let's not just like make it so two or three teams are really getting screwed over in especially comparison when if two or three teams get screwed over and they become insolvent that's bad for the entire league every team suffers for that so there's no motivation whatsoever not to do that yeah well as long as uh you know morton's and landry's are the only places available for takeout in the bubble i think the rockets will be okay <laughs> Got yeah, to keep them keep them afloat in Houston. <laughs> yep, this is true. Uh, now, now, it, you know, Daryl Morey is a great friend uh, of SBC. Of course, he he is uh, is often spoken there. Uh, but uh, tell us what we're doing for SBC this year uh, with this uh, in these unprecedented times. Sure. So. As we said at the top of the show, right, SBC is going to be virtual this year. So the idea is to prevent something that's going to be of great value in a virtual environment. And I kind of looked at it in terms of what can we just lift and shift? We can take stuff and just teach it in a virtual setting. And a lot of our curriculum works just like that. You know, the salary cap lectures, um, Wes Wilcox's great lectures on, hey, this is how teams work in terms of scouting and preparing for the year. And 
and and the scouting instruction. You know, Jeff Fellinser's um, stuff on jobs and sports, uh, the the media and broadcast stuff. A lot of that we can just teach directly over a virtual setting, and then everybody can benefit. Some of it we can't do the same way because unfortunately there's no summer league, and as you know, SBC is part and parcel of summer league, and we are immersed in it. So we're able to take students directly into summer league and have them sitting in the stands with NBA scouts scouting the game with them and broadcasting from the sidelines and things like that. Well, we can't do that this year, but we can, instead of going into the stands with the scout and scout a game, we can have scouts presenting um, scouting over video. And there's advantages to that, right? Okay, you're not live doing it, but the, the people doing the presentations have not just that specific summer league game to work off. They can bring in anything that they want to illustrate. And the power of the rewind button, as Wes Wilcox likes to say, we can take this, we can rewind it, we can go forward with it. So there's a lot of opportunity to really show how to scout a game when you have the opportunity to bring in whatever you want and show it over and over in order to really hammer stuff down. Um, we're not doing the different some of the, some of the more interactive things. So the CBA practicum, um, which is sort of a mock trade deadline and and has been one of the most popular parts of SBC. Unfortunately, we're not going to do that this year just because it's too interactive. I think to work in the a virtual setting, but we're going to be doing some great stuff in terms of immersive activity in scouting video and analytics. Really taking students step by step through a lot of stuff with the other advantage being timing, right? This is not just summer league that this is happening, but the actual league is going on while we're doing this. So we're going to be able to say what's happening in the league today and how do we talk about that in SBC and, and really emphasize how um, how how this applies to, to the curriculum we're doing. Um, we're not doing three separate majors this year. In SBC, normally you have your GE content, like a college, right? You have your GE content that everybody gets, but then you pick a major to specialize in. Everybody's going to get the same content this year. Um, so we're going to do smaller deep dives, but it's going to be be the focus on some of the most relevant things. I think it's going to, you know, and then we're still going to get a lot of the great stuff in terms of we're bringing in the cream of the crop from the league for one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, we're going to be, do, be still doing a lot of the in-depth content that we're doing. Uh, all of the, the, the soul of SBC is still going to be in there. We're still going to present it. And the other advantage being this opens it up to a much wider audience, right? SBC in Las Vegas, you have to be able to come to Vegas. You have to be able to spend a week with us. You have, you know, it's a lot more expensive. With this, it's a lot cheaper. It's $6.99. So it's just a completely different price point for people. And it's, we're holding it over one week. August 10th through 14th. So, and and even if you're not able to attend everything, or if you're in some part of the world where, hey, I'm, my time zone's reversed and your classes are going on, for what for me is 3 a.m. Well, we're going to have everything through video on demand. So if you miss a session or you're just going to come in later to the day, you can still pick up that session. You know, you can't do live Q&A in that session, but there's plenty of opportunity for seeing everything, for interacting with 
with us, socializing with us and with each other in in networking sessions. We're still going to run office hours. We're still going to set up one-on-one sessions. We're, we're going to pair you with a lead person. Let's say you're interested in becoming a scout or an agent or whatever. We'll pair you up with one of those people for a one-on-one session. You can you can just hit them with questions about, about the job, how to get into the job, anything that you want to know. All of that is still going to be an SBC at a much more affordable price point. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to doing it again this year, doing some lecturing, doing some networking as well. So if you sign up, maybe you will be assigned to me. I guess that's maybe that's not as good as being assigned to Wes Wilcox, but uh, you know, still, hopefully I, I, you, you want to talk know, to me about you know. your professional future. <laughs> uh, I could be of, of some assistance. So uh, yeah, it was great having you on again, Larry. Uh, we always uh, appreciate your cap insight and looking forward to hanging out some more virtually Virtually, uh, at SBC this year. Always a pleasure, Nate. All right, we got a little bit of news to get to. The top line item, really, really encouraging. The NBA's press release today saying that none of the 346 players tested inside the bubble have tested positive. There were two players who were caught in the quarantine process, but they did not have apparently close contact with any other players. And this is just really fantastic news as far as whether they're actually going to be able to pull this off because. They aren't going to really have anyone else entering the bubble now with whom they're going to have close contact. The concern was that players would bring the infection into the bubble, but we've gone long enough now, whereas really July 9th is when the last of those teams arrived. It's been about 10 days. If there were infections, they almost certainly would have been picked up by this point. So that is really encouraging that they're going to be able to get this thing done. There are still a number of players not in Orlando as best we can tell. This is the list that I was able to come up with. I apologize if this ends up being incomplete. Obviously the NBA is trying to obfuscate as much as possible, but they did at least provide us with each team's roster for the restart. And of the players on those rosters who do are not sitting it out due to a non-COVID injury, you know, like your Kyrie Irving's Kevin Durant season-ending injury players, this is the best list I can come up with the players who are not there yet, many of whom have confirmed that they've tested positive for COVID-19. Sacramento, Harrison Barnes, he said on social media that he had tested positive unclear when he's going to be able to return he did say he was somewhat or largely asymptomatic i think was the the term that he used so that would mean that he is having some symptoms for the clippers they have been really playing it close to the vest but best we can tell marcus morris avicha zubach and landry shamit have yet to join them we haven't heard anything about a confirmed test for morris or zubach to my knowledge but shamit had in fact tested positive there is hope that they're going to be there soon and then mantras harrell left the bubble to attend to a family matter with he and zion williamson there's speculation that no this is actually just code for them having the virus but if in fact it's true that they haven't had any positive tests inside the bubble that would in theory and then unless there's just some real obfuscation going on that would in theory rule out the idea that either harrell or williamson actually had the virus and they are going to have to quarantine when they return we don't know if they're able to maintain testing to limit their quarantine when they return to four days or whether they're going to have to go up to 10 days once they get back into the bubble back to the list markeith morris also has not joined the lakers with he and marcus morris bulping out they generally spend a lot of time together that might be an indication that both of them uh, had tested positive we don't have confirmation on that 
Denver, Gary Harris, and Torrey Craig both arrived on Sunday. Michael Porter Jr. and Monte Morris, as far as we know, are the ones who are not there yet, at least uh, among players who might play. Houston, Russell Westbrook did arrive uh, as well. He is uh, in, uh, that was on Monday, so he'll be going through the quarantine process where he has to get two negative COVID tests 24 hours apart, but apparently he has tested negative enough to get back. Luke Mbamute still hasn't arrived. We don't know the reason for that. yet. remember they just signed him uh, as well. Miami, this is some detective work taken to do this, but they had mentioned that there were three rotation players who had tested positive. One of those was Derek Jones Jr. He is now there, but... Goran Dragic let slip that Bam Adebayo and Kendrick Nunn are not with them. And Ira Winterman says that they still are not there, uh, their beat writer. So you would imagine that they've tested positive, though we haven't had a formal announcement of that and uh, have yet to be able to join the bubble. Milwaukee, Eric Bledsoe, he stated that he had tested positive. Likewise, with Pat Connaughton, neither of them are there yet. Bledsoe is reportedly asymptomatic. Mike Budenholzer did express optimism that Bledsoe could rejoin soon. Zion Williamson for the Pels. We know he is out with a a family matter. The Pels signed Cinderius Thornwell, and it appears that he will be replacing Josh Gray, who is not on the roster. So Gray perhaps is the one that tested positive. For New Orleans, we know that they had one positive test. And then Phoenix, we haven't had any confirmation that Ricky Rubio or Aaron Baines are there. And Monty Williams evaded discussions of how they had looked in practice where he had been quite effusive of say about say DeAndre Ayton so it would appear that they are not there yet we actually have some injury news uh, to hit on DeMontis Sabonis Pacers all-star is experiencing a flare-up of plantar fasciitis and that is not good at all he apparently is not putting weight on that foot he's going to sit out at least two or three days he is not slated to play in their three scrimmage games this week Goga Bitadze is also dealing with some sort of muscle soreness I don't think we got a particular diagnosis on that it was referred to as a soft tissue injury by Nate McMillan but Victor Oladipo is going to play in these scrimmages reports have been that he has looked really good and so he probably wouldn't be playing in these scrimmages if they weren't planning on ramping him up and so the whole controversy of whether he was going to get paid or not will be moot if uh, of course he actually suits up Sacramento continues to be snake bit. Marvin Bagley now is going to have an MRI on his right foot. And it was his left foot that kept him out and looked like it might be season ending back in February. Bagley only played, I think, 13 games this year. But now it's a right foot injury and MRI is pending on that one. But it does not sound particularly good. The Kings did finally get Alex Len back. He talked to the media and said he first tested positive on June 22nd when they returned to market. And he then tested positive for 24 straight days until he finally was able to get those two negative tests and rejoin the team in Orlando uh, but he was in fact symptomatic uh, to some degree so it's unclear whether he's going to be able to work back and now really with Bagley likely out Harry Giles seems like he's going to be the starting center they're also trying to work Jabari Parker back in uh, after his COVID diagnosis he is back with the team but he's uh, ramping up relatively slowly so hopefully they can get Len back and at least get a, a second center into the mix but I mean with De'Aaron Fox's ankle injury the Kings might have actually been able to fight for that ninth seed and the play-in position but uh, they are going to be facing some difficulties in that early on having Bagley out might actually help them a little bit if they can get Len back but that's in terms of winning games they also just needed more information about where Bagley is as a player and whether he can help them or not also want to tell y'all that we are going to be on the NBA's Twitch channel me and Danny at 12 Pacific noon or uh, 
sorry, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific on Wednesday. And what we're doing, we're actually going to be talking over live video, going back and looking at some of the key games, including Bucks Celtics, Rockets Portland, Lakers Clippers, and using them to preview some of the bubble matchups and potential playoff matchups as well. So we're going to actually get a chance to talk over some live video. Danny, I'm really looking forward to that on the NBA's Twitch channel. Apparently Twitch is going to promote that pretty heavily. So please check that out, or you can always go back and watch it afterwards. We'll be doing, of course, live Q&A as we normally do during the NBA cast. So please stay tuned for that. And now uh, let's bring in Danny and we'll do our look at the young players on the Magic and Orders. Actually spent a lot of time on these players. There's some really interesting guys that we had a chance uh, to get to. Okay, let's bring in Danny now to discuss what he termed on our last episode, the two more exciting teams of the Southeast Division. Compared to the Wizards. (laughs) (laughs) Compared to the Wizards. I'm trying to sell this here. I mean, mean, honestly, I am absolutely fascinated in the young players on both the Magic and the Hornets that we're going to discuss. I can hope that people who are nerdy enough to listen to this show uh, feel similarly. Well, and there's there's some interesting ground here. I mean, so we could start with Devontae Graham. Devontae Graham, one of the more stunning... Devontae Graham plays for the Charlotte Hornets, by the way. In case (laughs) Um, case anyone's wondering. As a rookie, Graham played about half of the Hornets games, averaged five points three assists per game, came off the bench, and then got thrust into the starting role when Kemba Walker left for Boston, and then just absolutely explodes. 18 points, seven and a half assists in 35 minutes per game. Uh, his second year is his age 24 season because Graham played all, he played at, at Kansas for four years. And really a, a, a revelation in a lot of ways, uh, 15.8 PER, still 54% true shooting on about 25 usage, 35 assist percentage, basketball references, a version of the stat. And the big thing that drove that was Graham shot 28% on 6.4 threes per 36 as a rookie, then shot 37% on 9.5 threes as a second year player. And almost a majority of those were self-created. It was 55% assisted. Yeah, that's really impressive for him. And yeah, I mean, he's become one of the best off the dribble three-point bombers. You know, he's attempting about five three-pointers off the dribble. And that's right up there with the likes of some of the other players that, that we talked about on the previous episode, including uh, Trey Young. So that aspect of his game is really good. Now, you know, he did shoot 37% from three overall. That number steadily dropped throughout the season he did shoot it well at kansas uh, and he is a solid although not like completely ridiculous free throw shooter um but that aspect of his game i mean he does it well enough to draw the defense out to some degree i mean he's not getting the you know double team him at the point of attack type of defensive attention but for a charlotte team that really didn't have anyone else who is going to be able to create out of pick and roll efficiently as he mentioned he was a revelation i also think danny his passing is very underrated yeah, he has he has more potential there. He's not one of these like blow your mind type of passers. We have a few in the league, but I think that he he does a lot well. And one of the interesting stats on that is kind of when you think about his success as a as a pick and roll ball handler. So there, this this will 
come up a little bit actually in the in the south. Um, I guess that'd be the southwest as well. So Graham, when he's um, when he's doing his own offense, shooting for himself, point uh, nine basically points per possession per synergy, and they're better on passes. I think that he he can find guys that are open, and also he can do it in in other circumstances. I don't like I don't think I love him as a passer. I like him also. He's better at passing in transition than scoring. He whatever reason he was a little bit limited as a transition scorer. So yeah, he can find guys. I like that too. Yeah. Now he doesn't really have the height to find guys on the backside as shooters you know that that's where he's kind of limited actually uh, i tweeted this out a, a while ago but there's a zoom presentation by hornets assistant dutch gately talking about all the ways that they tried to get Devonte graham open uh, talking about how they would set screens for him way high out on the floor so he could step into three pointers if they were playing any kind of a drop coverage defensively so they had to do a lot of stuff to get him going but the fact that you could shoot that three off the dribble it is a, a pretty solid weapon oh and, one thing i wanted to bring yeah. up on that so just as a point of context graham this is using the nba's tracking data graham shot 5.8 pull-up threes per game that was the sixth most in the nba this year but that would have been the third most in the nba as recently as last year when only yeah. kemba and james harden attempted more than he did so i mean that kind of volume is incredible 34 percent on those is good that's about in line with what trey and james harden did less than the ridiculous numbers dame lillard put up but so for graham to be able to to put that in and and also also as a passer something i mean the hornets bombed away from three which helps but you could think about this under talented hornets team especially offensively and that graham could do better the more attention other players had to generate because they were you know better yeah when he was running pick and roll they, again they ran a lot of pick and roll with him you know it wouldn't surprise me if he were up there among the players who ran the most pick and rolls in the nba and you know he was starting with terry rozier in the backcourt but rozier you know is not really as much of a pick and roll threat so uh, but you know, usually on the backside, it's a PJ Washington, Miles Bridges. Somebody's not going to hold a ton of attention from the defense. But uh, the big issue for him is he almost shot as well as threes as on twos. He was a thirty-nine point seven percent on two pointers this season. And you know, he's not going to be a great finisher. You know, he's one of the six foot. He's definitely you know a little undersized for a point guard you know he definitely will get penetration gnash it under the basket look for openings to drop it off but he just doesn't have the size to be a great finisher and he's a, a solid athlete but he's not you know a nuclear athlete at that size and so to me i think the next place for his development is i'd be watching a ton of trey young film to see how does trey young at a similar size and stature get to the foul line so much and that i think using the threat of his three-pointer to just kind of draw contact on guys coming over the screen or you know even as he tries to get into a floater that's the other thing i'd really work on is try to get like just an unbelievable floater those are the two things i would be focusing on if i were him in his further development and obviously though he, he deserves a, a huge development grade i mean i think you have to go probably with a 10 I, I mean he might be he might be the first 10 that we've given out considering that he really was not playable last year Oh, absolutely. I mean, to go from where he was to a completely viable starting point guard is is massive. And I think it's really important for the Hornets moving forward. Let's jump to their first round pick this past year. PJ Washington started 57 of his 58 games and averaged 12 points, 5.4 rebounds in about 30 minutes per game. 12.4 PER, 55% true shooting on about 19 usage. And importantly, Washington made his threes. You want the volume to go up a little bit, but 37% on 4.7 
2.7 per 36. Reasonable attempt rate for a big and great success rate for that. Yeah, certainly his shooting was better than expected. I do think the overall impression of Washington, he's one of those guys who had a couple of big three-point shooting games early on and that patina kind of followed him all year yeah in terms of people's impression of him that he's like some big stud rookie and you know i think that might be going a little bit too far you know i think he may or may not develop into a starter i see his upside somewhere maybe in the marcus morris type of area uh and marcus morris evolved into a very very good player ultimately but you know i think it, when i say that that's his upside you know he's gonna have to go a lot further to be someone like marcus morris defensively yes. uh in terms of moving his feet uh, and you know marcus morris has become a 40 percent three-point shooter he's got a little bit better mid-range game than washington uh, as well i mean marcus morris became a 20-point score relatively efficiently for the knicks this year so uh you know i think washington there is something to like here you know i'm higher on him than i was around the time of the draft because you know i thought he would struggle to make the transition to the perimeter i think he exceeded expectations in his ability to do that but also it's important to remain realistic about where he is and what he has to work on going forward here so what are some of the the highline numbers for him so I mentioned the 37% on threes. Washington did only shoot 51% on twos and only attempted 2.8 free throws per 36 minutes. That attempt rate is, is, is problematic, and that's why he had a league average true shooting despite taking and making a pretty good solid amount of threes. And a big part of that for Washington was floaters. So he took a full 25% of all the shots from the field from that 3 to 10 foot range and only made 34% of those. If you shift some of those to ideally to shots in the restricted area where he made 66% or to free throws, being be a little bit more aggressive, not settle, that would be important or even shifting some of them to threes because shooting 34% on floaters and 37% on threes, you get the extra point and everything else like that. But the bigger challenge for me with, with Washington moving forward is that while his the on-off stats both liked him defensively, and there are some things that I appreciate there, guys that I don't consider super switchy that don't really have the chops to be rim protectors, and from what I saw Washington, I'm not writing anything off with him 21 years old, but I saw him more as a kind of a four defensively than a five. It can sometimes be hard to fit, so I'm not I'm not like freaked out about it, but it's something I'm aware of. Yeah, and again, he showed more mobility than expected. I mean, if you saw him, uh, he was just almost a, really a five at the lower levels uh, yeah. and really operated exclusively inside. So he deserves a ton of credit for the transition that he's able to make. I want to go back to something you said, though, about 25% of the shots being from floater range, not making a high percentage of those, and then also the low free throw rate. And a, a lot of those are related to the fact that, you know, floater range is generally the term we like to use, but that's a, a misnomer, I think, in his case, just because he He's getting a lot of that posting up. And so a lot of what That's he was point. doing was uh, pick and roll. He read more pick and roll than, than expected, but pick and roll, get the switch, and then try to get into the post. But his post game, you know, if you compare him, and this guy didn't post up nearly as much, uh, but compare him to like Grant Williams' approach in the post. Like Grant Williams is like, oh, you you got the switch on me? I'm going to just put your ass in the goal right now. And now Grant Williams is posting up in slightly different situations, right? It's not, okay, we get the switch and pick and roll. It's kind of a set piece. We, you know, there's not really, once you get the pick and roll switch, it's tough to really try to post up like right at the charge circle. But when he gets the ball against a smaller player, it's not just back down, use his size. A lot of it is goes to a hook shot, which is, yeah, it's like an okay shot for him. You know, he doesn't have the highest release. Sometimes he doesn't get the greatest uh, position on that. 
you know, he'll come across the lane. He can't really go to his right shoulder particularly well either. You know, it's very dependent on that hook shot that he's just not getting great position on. And so if he's going to post up this much, I mean, I like the idea of him really trying to mash someone as a former, you know, he's got to chase these guys around. So now maybe he can make guys pay as a former, you know, power forward center type, but he doesn't post up like that. He doesn't use his size enough. And so that to me is one of the big things that he needs to do. I mean, for it was a perfect example of this. They get the pick and roll switch and he posts up Terrence Ferguson, who has uh, roughly the body mass of a piece of paper. And he's on the right block. He drives across the lane for like a tough lefty hook fading away. And really, I think he really needs to take his time back down and either draw help or score, but really, you know, make himself undeniable as opposed to taking a shot that, eh, you know, he could make it, but it's not a shot that the defense is like really worried about. Yeah, and I could see Washington's approach changing in time depending on how how his his build changes, how how James Borrego and the coaching staff adjust him to his role. Like I mean, but as a rookie, I think there were there were some some positive signs there. It was also interesting. I alluded to this before that both RPM and PIPM liked him on on defense. Uh, plus two point four two defensive RPM is very strong, but a a, neg- a significant negative on offense, and and I think that's more about huh. the context. Well, well, if you compare him to the on-off numbers from Miles Bridges, I think there's your answer on why he's so high on some of those. Yeah, that could be. Do you, so do you want to use that as a transition to Miles Bridges? No, well, I mean, I got a little more on Washington. Sure. I think that he's someone that people want to uh, want to talk a lot about. Uh, sorry, I interrupted your point there. So, uh, but, but so I, I think his defense is a little bit more is a little bit more limited. I think he could be a, co- a a nice little complimentary piece, but I think that he, you know, Washington. I don't think that other than as a change of pace, I don't love him as a small ball five. I don't think that's going to add in like one of those. Again, it's not the biggest sample size, but. A and shot 65% on contested shots at the rim. And he, you know, block rate, you know, a little bit under a block per 36 minutes. Not that he was asked to, like, be that guy in the center of the lane. The the, the Hornets had centers. He only, PJ only played center, I think it was like 11% of the time this year per cleaning the glass. And the Hornets sucked in those minutes, small sample size. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that Washington, like, a lot of this is going to be the shift in, like, how his mentality adjusts to being a smaller fish in a bigger pond offensively. And then where he slots in defensively is he can he be like a, a helper who can also do a little maybe a little bit of switching and if he can check a couple of those boxes then I mean not every forward size player doesn't have to be a superstar you can still be hit your shots and make life harder on the opposing offenses and you're good yeah and the shooting was encouraging hopefully he can continue to build a on that you know i mean that that could be a because he's not I, I don't think his defensive tools are atrocious i don't think he as you mentioned he's gonna be some real like quality option there but i think he can hold up so like with so many of these young players that we're talking about you know i really want to see is he gonna continue to specialize he you know showed a lot of offensive versatility pick and roll roll man you know probably set more pick and roll screens than your average four man is going to do you know he can finish around the basket a little bit he's got this post-up game he was acceptable as a driver needs to work on his passing to be sure so he's got some versatility offensively but you just wonder how much uh, on a good team he would actually be doing some of this stuff and so you know if he he's going to try to continue to evolve in these ways 
but you know is that going to be something that you eventually want him doing you know the, his development really it will answer the question for that so yeah now let's turn to miles bridges here in his age 21 season so bridges he almost doubled his scoring going from 7.5 points as a rookie per game to 13 in about 31 minutes per game starting just about every game for the hornets this year and he unfortunately though bridges did that offensively more by volume rather than efficiency he actually dropped from 55 percent true shooting to 52 percent and a lot of that came it was a a, for me a disappointing year for bridges from two-point range so he shot 49 percent on twos and he only got to the basket for 31 percent of his attempts also it's not like he switched those to free throws his free throw weight went up but not a ton and then took 23 percent of his shots from floater range and only made 34 percent of those so kind of like for pj those can be a real challenge because you need to shift those into something else, especially when Bridges is not a terrible three-point shooter, but it's not like he's bringing as much there either. No, I mean, he is like on the lower end of acceptable as a three-point shooter. I mean, he'll he'll take them, but in, that's something that's going to have to continue to evolve for him. I, you know, he doesn't project as a plus shooter, but he, maybe he can get into that consistent 35% range where he yeah. at least... And 81% on free throws this year too. Small sample, but 81%. Yeah, he has an interesting game and, you know, really undersized from a height standpoint as a power forward, but very athletic. That doesn't necessarily show up in some of the defensive markers. He'll get some like big highlight blocks every now and again, but uh, I really, I think offensively he could be reasonably on track if he were going to become a stalwart defensively and that's where it's really not working out for him so far to me is you know in isolation defense just his feet look slow they don't look that's something i talked about with spencer percy as something he really needed to improve before the season and you know i didn't really see that from him and you know as we mentioned those defensive numbers are truly terrible i mean 480th overall in pipm and the number 75 small forward out of 96 in rpm um you know actually pretty interesting that rpm has them as a slight positive on defense pipm has them as a big negative on defense that probably is due to the luck adjustment yes so maybe he benefited from some opposing opposing uh shooting luck so I, I, do you agree with me that he struggled uh, defensively? Yeah, I mean, some could point to like the synergy, the synergy number for his ISO defense wasn't wasn't terrible, but it's a small sample. It was only 81 possessions. And I think you see yeah. it when you watch the film. Yeah, and the hope is with his athleticism that he could come over, make plays at the nail, make plays as a, a help defender, and you know block some shots every now and again, as I mentioned. But that's not you know he's he's not making the consistent nuts and bolts plays as a help defender. You know you hope that he could really be switchable with that body type and his strength that he could evolve to really maybe even guard one through five. You know that wasn't with their small guards that wasn't a big part of what the Hornets were trying to do this year. But uh, I mean he can't even stay in front of guys uh, who are his size not to mention you know point guard size guys um offensively i think uh you know one thing that i did really like about him uh i and you can contrast his approach in this to pj washington is i thought i really liked what he did posting up against smaller players i mean one of the other things that you can do as a big guy against a small guy is just go quickly right away into a spin move and you know that doesn't you'd think like oh why are you going to try and beat a smaller player with quickness but what happens is that player is when you catch the ball he's so worried about getting back down he'll be leaning on you 
and then you can just spin right off him and once you get even half a shoulder by that smaller player he's not going to be able to bother you and so that was Bridges approach I, I like that he loves to roll in for some big right-handed dunks you know he will, is one of the more spectacular dunkers even as a lefty he loves to go in with that right hand um he's got actually like a pretty decent jump hook with either hand uh, as well but he'll take it from a little shorter range uh, again uh, than Washington so uh you know he didn't do a ton of posting up Washington did much more posting up but I thought Bridges was much more effective he'll also you know just kind of in a even a spot up situation with being guarded by a smaller player he'll just put his back to goal and kind of back down so I actually liked that aspect of what he's doing uh but you know as a finisher contested in a less static situation you know it wasn't amazing he's really right around 50 percent finishing uh, at the rim in the half court which is not you know for a guy with his athleticism you'd hope that he could evolve to be one of the best finishers in the NBA that hasn't happened yet well so, and it's also yeah. stunning Bridges um 16th percentile as a transition score and you would expect yeah. that I mean some of that is is turnovers but you would expect for that to be considering his physical gifts you'd expect that to be a lot higher yeah now worth noting that this Charlotte team low-key was among the slowest paced in the NBA true so they really did not push it all now you'd think hey if they're being judicious about it then uh <laughs> you'd you'd hope that only the efficient opportunities would be taken but that you know that's not necessarily the case so uh, maybe that can impact a little bit uh, on some of the transition numbers you mentioned that Graham his numbers weren't great either but well, and but, yeah one of the challenges that Charlotte's going to have to deal with we've talked about the value for many many bits of her podcasts about drafting forward sized guys is I'm not confident in the potential fit of Bridges in Washington like I think that they're both they they, they yeah occupy similar roles and they occupy similar spaces on the floor and I personally like Washington better for right now that could change if Bridges improves but that that might mean you try to move one of them or that you try to try to do something else but like I, there aren't many other ways to like generate fear in opponents I, that's something I think about a lot and we talked about how potentially they could make life easier for Devonte Graham and I, I'm a little bit concerned about that. Charlotte will have opportunities because they're going to have high draft picks, I think, for another another couple of years as they build up this asset base. They're also going to have cap space. But I, I am concerned about the fit of those two guys individually, unless they grow enough that it becomes not an issue which can happen with with players in their early 20s yeah and now you can also make the argument that bridges if he's got better guys setting him up i mean graham was a revelation but he's still you know below average as a primary creator well below average you would say uh you know he gets that usage rate below 20 i mean he really does not have the skill level to have that type of a usage frankly so maybe that can enable him to be more efficient as well so if he were in a little bit different of a role he might look better so there's a thought there but i agree with you on on bridges in washington you know neither of them really has uh, the type of ball skills uh, and shooting skills you'd want at small forward but the odds are i mean both those guys were drafted number 12 probably only one of them is going to work out and maybe zero of them frankly as a starter level of player and so you know i, I maybe you would try to move bridges and see see what you could get for him if you really think that washington is the truth but honestly those guys you probably don't have to worry about them playing together because one of them is just not gonna be that good um yeah that that's that's a totally fair point um and a development score i'm gonna give him a three um i mean that seems about right yeah i mean th- there were there are some elements of bridges game that i really like and so if you look at the top line numbers and a drop from 55 percent true shooting to 52 and some of the other like some of the other lack of growth but i think there are there are some pieces there that you can build and remember improvement for young players isn't always like linear in either direction it can be you have to build up the skill set so we'll see what he looks like in the 2020 slash 
slash 21 season. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, his defense is pretty linear. Right, so right. He, and that's, he pretty much just stays at one straight And that's why I thought really about that's why I thought about giving him a two. But I, I'll, yeah. I'll stick with the three. Oh, let's get some Leak Monk. I mean, Monk, this was his third season, age 21, 10.3 points, two assists in about 21 minutes per game. 13 PER, 53% true shooting on 23% usage. And what's what's surprising with Monk when you consider a small guy who had a rep as a shooter coming out of college is that he had 53% true shooting despite shooting 28% on 6.3 three-pointers per 36 minutes. Yeah, and and that's not a ton of threes. I think he's cut down on them a little bit when they just were not going in at all. But what was incredibly impressive about him is just his ability to get to the basket. I mean, he is really explosive off of two feet. You know, he's not amazing as a pick and roll guy. Like, he'll kind of get tunnel vision looking for the roll man. He'd get, get a bunch of turnovers trying to force the pass in there. Um, but it, particularly off of spot up situations and closeouts. And, and again, I think this part of this was just the three point wasn't going down. He, he focused more on getting to the basket. But that looked really good. I mean, he was 26 out of 35 as a driver off of spot-up situations getting to the basket. Um, he also shot it pretty well off the dribble in those situations. Um, you know, for a guy with as a shooter, in spot-up situations, I like to look at this sometimes of, uh, what do you do when you catch the ball in an advantage situation uh, on Synergy? And more than half the time, he's actually putting it on the floor as opposed to shooting the three. But he had really good numbers to doing that. Um, you know, as a pick-and-roll ball handler shooting the ball, he improved proved to around average he's again he's not creating a ton for others but as a secondary pick and roll ball handler you don't necessarily have to do that as much but uh you know really between floater zone getting to the rim and shooting it off the dribble uh, with jump shots uh, in pick and roll he's pretty average uh at all three levels and i mean really the, the things that show up for me his two-point percentage over the last three years has gone from 38 percent to 46 percent to 54 percent over the last three years and his free throw rate which his rookie year was just a joke nine percent it's up to 20 percent. so that's around average now um you know he doesn't necessarily have like that kind of the bullshit foul drawing tricks but he's at least getting fouled a reasonable amount now so he's actually done a lot of development which because of that 28 percent three-point shooting maybe doesn't show up as much so uh my thought is that maybe and of course he had that big suspension too uh which he's been reinstated now um ended up not really having to miss very many games at all yeah in, was, in he was suspended end. on february 26th and was reinstated on june 8th and barely missed any time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, my thought is, you know, maybe this guy really could be something if he can recover his three-point shooting to, you know, at least average or, or above. And there's some hope that he can do that given his reputation as a shooter. Although it's obviously been a massive disappointment three years in now. Yeah. Well, let's 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 couch that improvement as on one end of the floor because yes, that's true. I mean, he's just he's a shooting guard and he's way undersized and he doesn't have a defensive mentality. Like he's he's not going to be good. And that's what and, and, and that's. And that's that's what yeah. really concerns me about Monk is that when you game this out and say, oh, like you and I both see potential for him as an offensive player. I don't think his shooting mechanics are broken as a like he's a career 85 percent three point shooter in the pros shot 82 percent his year at Kentucky when he also made 40 percent of his threes reminder there. But and, and the drive game has improved. Free throw attempt rate is improved. But 
a player of Monk's limited defensive skill set, you know, can't really defend the point of attack, can't really defend anything, has to be incredibly good offensively to justify a starting role. They can come off the bench no problem. I mean, we've seen guys like Jordan Clarkson, various various levels of limited defensive shooting guards be valuable in the league, if not huge player, huge pluses. And and so I think with Monk, that's the line is can he be good enough offensively to for you to tolerate the limitations and maybe he can get enough you know i've talked a lot about how the idea of turning a weakness into a neutral or turning it into a smaller negative is is very important i want to see monk compete more defensively want to see him you know not not be a great defender but but do a little bit better and that's why this is such a challenge for him not on the rookie scale contract no, no problems there whatsoever but remember monk he's extension eligible right now and then would theoretically be a restricted free agent with a with a pretty sizable qualifying offer the, though i don't think he'll meet the starter criteria and so but just does somebody pay for that does somebody think that there's more there so like for development score i want to i'll give him like a six even though because i think the defense is concerning but it's also just he has limited tools there so i think i think that's a fair balance between two if it was offense only i'd probably give him like a seven maybe an eight or a nine if he could actually hit threes again but i i wonder I, i think i would still give him a seven anyway because of just where he was coming from as looking like That's a fair. guy who was going to be out of the league post haste. Yeah, and um, that, and that so isn't it, that isn't yeah. necessarily true, at least in terms of his on court play. We'll we'll see. What, hopefully, he's hopefully whatever led to the suspension is is cleaned up now. But yeah, real quickly on on him, you know, I mean, your hope is that he could become maybe like a Lou Williams type, and you know, you say that about every undersized shooting guard who's not a, a great passer. He doesn't have that level of quickness. He doesn't have that level of ball skills. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the foul drawing ability, uh, all that. So he's not going to get to that level more likely than not. But you know, as as a seventh man scoring guard off the bench uh, who can maybe get really hot for you you know i think that's kind of his future you know it's six million dollar a year player maybe if he continues to develop a um but so i mean that's and that's a big step forward for him frankly yeah uh, because of of where he was and you know he's not going to be donovan mitchell but he'll maybe he can at least uh, carve out a career for himself which wasn't something that you necessarily would have said coming into this season let's go to cody martin who is significantly older than malik monk but that's because he spent all that time in college at nevada um age 24 season as a rookie martin averaged five points 3.3 rebounds and two assists in 19 minutes per game 48 games 10.5 per 51 percent true shooting on about 14 usage and Cody Martin, the the worst scorer of the two, but the better defender of the twins that are on the same NBA team, which is still amazing. 23% on 3.13s per 36 minutes. You know who he reminds me of is someone we've already talked about in this series, and that's uh, Bruce Brown. Sure. Uh, pretty similar. Yeah. What'd you say? A little bigger to me, but yeah, yeah same I, idea. Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he's maybe, you know, a little bit better against bigger guys, not quite as quick as Brown. Uh, but the part of the reason, in addition to the terrible shooting and the defensive intensity, where I, I mean, I did think he was a very solid defensive player. You know, is he? He doesn't have the quite the tools to check the absolute biggest wings. But you know, I mean, on this team, he was easily the best perimeter defender and that's why he got so much more time uh, you know really played mostly at the three um but he also actually has like a little bit of pick and roll ability as well and, and like the numbers out of that were good you know i don't think he's as good of a passer as brown i thought he's a little bit better as a finisher in pick and roll and you know it wasn't like 
crazy craft put the guy in jail type of stuff uh, from him but you know they would run stuff out of the corner where he could get going to his right hand off a handoff or out of pick and roll and he could actually finish at the rim a little bit so he's got some offensive game um you know he's evolving as a shooter certainly but you know passes up a lot of shots and uh it does i think he can get better than 23 (laughs) percent but maybe not much better he certainly is not a natural as a shooter well and and one of those stats that we always kind of keep an eye on this is that cody martin shot 36 percent on threes his his final year of college but his first two years at nc state he shot a combined 14 three-pointers total and made three of them and then his junior year nevada he shot 29% from three. So yeah, he did have that that burst and show up. I mean, it's not like Martin was drafted super high. It was 36. So, you know, and I think that with the defense he showed, he outperformed that. But again, the idea that like just do, shooting one year in college doesn't mean you're a good shooter. And I mean, he could, he'll be better, I think, than he was this year. It'd be hard to be worse. And if that, you know, that's the, the swing skill for him is not defensive effort or intensity. We already know about that. But if he can help a team and actually get guarded, then we start to talk about maybe Martin being a starter on a, on a decent team. Yeah, I mean, he is, 43 points on 91 possessions as a spot-up guy. That includes drives off a spot-up. So uh, that's uh, 0.47 points per possession. Probably needs to get a little better. Um, So... Let's turn to briefly to uh, his twin, Caleb Martin. He's the scoring twin. Uh, only had 317 minutes, but started to get a little bit of time uh, after the trade deadline. Um, you know, I, I think he is maybe a, a little similar to a guy we talked about earlier, uh, Justin James for the Kings of just a, you know, not really a great athlete, not really a great defender, but, you know, was a, a good scorer in college and maybe is trying to find what his niche is going to be in the NBA. And he shot it pretty, pretty well. Um, is this right? 54% from three in, in very limited minutes? Yeah, he was 20 of 37 in the NBA. Yeah, so, uh, and per 36, only 4.2 three-point attempts, though. So, not a huge volume. Well, but in the G League, uh, yeah. C- Caleb shot 36% on on uh, 6.3 threes per 36 minutes. And he played, tw- he played over 1,000 minutes in the G League. Yeah, but he's really, you know, he's more of a scorer than a shooter, but, you know, he doesn't have the level of explosiveness to really be a scorer in the NBA. So he's going to have to find his niche. I mean, he's comfortable on the ball to some degree. Um, you know, I mean, he, he was uh, not drafted very high for a reason. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the fact that he's twins with Cody never entered the Hornets' minds. They would never do anything just based on PR. Well, I like mean, that it also might have been why Caleb went there because he was undrafted. I'm, I'm guessing he had some options and maybe he wanted to play with his brother for the third straight time. I mean, because they, play, they played together at NC State and Nevada and Oak Hill. Yeah, that's insane. So four four straight places they played together. That's uh so I mean, you know, I'm not saying that he like shouldn't isn't worth like taking a little bit of a chance on despite the snark uh but you know it's kind of it's just a player type that you're not really sure how it's going to work out and and the contract structure here considering for the hornets is i think will work out well so cody martin got two fully guaranteed seasons then as a third non-guarantee and then restrictive agent caleb minimum non-guarantee each of the next two years so i think you keep them around at least for next year they're going to be hurting for capable players and then you see how it works out and then if you want to cut him before the next year you can 
Dwayne Bacon, man, I mean, this is, you got to give him probably a one for development. And they were talking about him as, I mean, he really started the season as the starting shooting guard. Devontae Graham's development pushed him to the bench immediately, but he wasn't even able to remotely hold on to a rotation role. I mean, he ended up getting passed by Cody Martin and Caleb Martin. And it, it was really, you know, the hope was that he could build in as kind of a big wing score bully ball into the mid range. And then he was expanding his game beyond that as a three-point shooter but i mean the numbers were just so bad you know at at this point you really you know wonder whether he's gonna have any kind of a career going for this is age 24 season it was just a massive massive regression to the point where you wonder if there wasn't like some injuries going on well bacon so he played about 700 minutes in each of his three nba seasons 26 percent from threes for his rookie year 44 percent his second year 28 percent his third year so that's a net of 35 when he was never close to 35 percent yeah that is kind of and a very low volume there as well so Jalen McDaniels we did a big segment on him for 15 and 60 earlier in the season um you know so I I don't want to talk about him as much I mean he's an excellent rebounder skinny like his younger brother uh started to show some shooting ability you know playing as a combo forward has to get a lot stronger but he does make some wild plays athletically on occasion can get up to protect the rim on occasion so there definitely is something there he's extremely raw but another guy who hey, keep him around let's see let's see what happens with him uh in particular if he can build out his game a little bit as a driver and a shooter uh, and you know just get he's got to get stronger but you know your hope is that he could be a jonathan isaac light in terms of like his defensive impact is he going to get there more likely than not no i mean there's a reason he was drafted so low he's extremely raw but there are some interesting tools here with Jalen mcdaniels absolutely well we can we can jump from potential jonathan isaac to human being jonathan isaac who uh this was his age 22 season third year out of florida state and unfortunately this is the second of jonathan isaac's three seasons that was sidetracked massively by injury 949 minutes and 536 remember his rookie year when he battled injuries almost the whole time and but so the so the availability is a big question with isaac remember he will be extension eligible this offseason but when he was on the floor he was one of my favorite defensive players in the entire league yeah and probably maybe someone we should have given a little bit more shine to uh, when we were talking about some of the best defensive players uh, in the nba um but you know it's just been hard because he can't stay on the floor and offensively there really was not a ton to like you know he's continued to get stronger defensively i think that's helped him i mean he just looks huge out there he's got that big standing reach uh and it just makes a, a ton of plays um you know the offense just hasn't really improved that much in particular as a three-point shooter you know i i go back to that playoff series against the raptors last year where he was just nobody was even in his zip code they're just letting him fire away away from three and he was not able to make the defense pay uh and you know pretty much same frequency same percentage 33 percent 3.53 per 36 i mean that's just not going to cut it in terms of the type of offensive player that he's going to be and he's got some versatility to be sure um there is a lot of variety in how he attacks uh, but he's not particularly good at, at any of those in terms of his efficiency. He's not above average in any uh, efficiency other than just as a pick and roll roll man where he only had 19 possessions. So, you know, he, he'll post up a little bit. He'll try and cut to the basket. Uh, I mean, another thing that I think could really help him is just improving as a finisher. Yes. I mean, with his size, that's just not good enough. And 
we noted this since he's come out that he's a much better two foot leaper than one foot leaper so if he's really on the move getting to the basket he just struggles to explode and he's got pretty small hands too so he's not able to move the ball around and finish and so you know when you look at some of the numbers in the half court it's really not very impressive as a finisher you know, he's trying to improve his left hand a little bit so he can uh, get some more finishing angles but that's really still a work in progress as well but yeah i mean defensively he's just a, an absolute stud some of the some of the numbers there are, are close to unprecedented they they are so isaac blocked 7.4 percent of opponent two-point shots when he was on the floor and he also had a 2.6 steal percentage which is ridiculous and you know a pretty solid defensive rebounder as well all the way up to 19 percent and when you remember that he's playing next to a big basically all the time that you're going to see that number go down a little bit over the last 20 individual player seasons this was only the third year where somebody had a block rate over seven percent and a steal rate over 2.5 percent the other two were second time this has come up in these new orleans noel in 1819 and andre kirilenko in 0405 so just a player who can be a defensive playmaker and a shot blocker to that degree also limited sample opponent shot 50 i think it was 51 percent on shots isaac contested around the rim which is phenomenal and so I mean, he has a lot of those tools. And something that I've liked about Isaac, going back to the film I watched of him at Florida State, is that, so we talked in the BAM section in the last podcast we did about how I like BAM more as a kind of like a a switch and small guy defender and not as much as a rim protector. Isaac, he's not an amazing, you know, especially because he's not super stout, like rim protector if that's all he does. But I think of him as more of a hybrid between those two approaches. Somebody who can do either, maybe not as well as the specialists, but that's really scheme versatile, which I think is valuable because depending on what a team has going around Isaac he can make it work yeah and his defensive partnership with Aaron Gurren I thought was good Gordon's a little stronger maybe uh I don't know that he's better than Isaac on the ball but Isaac is so much better as a help guy that it makes more sense to have Isaac be the off-ball guy and he makes great rotations he'll come in from behind get some blocks he's got that huge standing reach but ultimately this all rolls back to he's just got to stay healthy I mean this is two of his three years now he had all those ankle problems as a rookie where he barely played now he had this severe knee injury I don't know if he's officially been ruled out yet from the restart and you know i'd love to see him get a, another round of playoff experience and really see where he's at as far as being able to make the defense pay if he's not being guarded and also just get a better understanding of what he needs to work on but you know i mean i think he's definitely gonna be a top 10 15 defensive player in the nba for a long time and it's just a question of whether he can stay healthy enough to find some offensive rhythm yeah, and a player who is good enough or potentially even great enough as Isaac is defensively, you can survive them being your worst offensive player. But something else that we've run into with Orlando and a few other teams is that that does put a lot of pressure on the general manager to build to put the right team around him and on on all the teammates. So like, yeah, you can survive if he's your if he's your limit most limited player. And I think that's that's Isaac's is probably his at least present likely his future as well but you know i think you can make that work you can deal with it but it it does put a lot especially when the point guard who is who is the same draft class who is also going to be extension this year while marco fultz does a lot of things shooting still not particularly one of them no i mean uh, what are the numbers on that well so yeah we'll start there with fultz this was his age 21 season he shot 25 percent on 2.3 threes per 36 oh we didn't we didn't give isaac a development sorry i kind of want to give him an incomplete because because of all the time he missed um but all i'd go five i think he's right he did he he didn't really do much offensively compared to where he was but he's still improving defensively and i thought that made a big difference yeah i'll give him a five 
Yeah. Okay. So but back to back Fultz to here, Fultz. and I mean, I'll probably I'm probably gonna give Fultz, you know, an eight or something. Yeah, absolutely. Development rating. Just I think I'm gonna give he, him a nine. Yeah. But uh, that said, uh, it does highlight where he was, so basically not being able to play at all last year, but also with the jump shot so far to go here yeah so 25 percent on 2.33s per 36 and those are mostly assisted now like remember we loved his off the dribble jump shot going back to the nike hoop summit and that's just not a part of it anymore and overall full shot 37 percent on jump shots 43 percent on two-point jumpers and amazingly this is actually a notable improvement from fultz I was I was looking at kind of like where he could improve from an efficiency standpoint, and I'm like, oh man, it'd be great if he could shoot more free throws. And then I went, wait, he couldn't shoot free throws before this year, so he's back up to 72. percent Um, granted, he only took 141 this year in yeah. 1800. That's actually, minutes. I think that might actually be better than where he was in college. I think he was like high 60s, low 70s. He was 65 percent in college. Yeah, which was so weird given the way that he shot. I mean, that that was a slight red flag. Which yeah, I mean, there was all this injury and potentially psychological stuff as well but going back maybe that was a a little bit of a red flag in terms of his shooting in college it was and so Fultz there there are a couple things about his offensive game to appreciate I mean he the the push and transition has has been a part of it and you see that not only in his passing but also in his own scoring so Fultz this year actually he's been around 65 percent field goal percentage in the restricted area every year gets there about for about the third of his shots and then improved on floaters went from being you know 30 percent floaters last year to 43 percent and 43 percent is not amazing but it's a whole lot better than 30 and then he was making those mid-rangers a little bit better this year so like i mean Fultz, you kind of sit there and go like god if he can ever figure this out there's still a lot that i like there but we've talked about this with various players including lonzo ball who will come up in a future podcast on this that the overall utility of a a player who's just not really that much of a threat to score off the dribble. It just if if that's who you're giving your offense to, it's going to lower your team's your your team's viability. Yeah, and now one thing where Fultz I think deserves a lot of credit is his ability in transition. He yes. really gave the Magic a transition element, uh, and you know he still has that high bouncy dribble in transition. He'll work into the lane. I thought one thing I really liked about him is he would just get in transition, and maybe he's not a threat to score, but he would at least break the paint or just engage the defense enough so that they couldn't get their matchup set and then he would kind of dribble around and probe and was really good at finding trail guys he had a good nice chemistry with terrence ross for example in transition the one magic guy who's gonna uh hit some threes you know evan fournier i guess it would be another one there but finding uh, their good shooters and then just watching some of his assists, I, I was very impressed. I mean, he really, if he can just get a little bit more dynamic as a score, I think it could open up his assist game a, a lot. You know, he had a, a nice chemistry with Vucevic when those two guys were out there. And so I, I there's still a lot to like with Fultz. It's, you know, he's a decent pick and roll point guard. He's got some pretty good craft there. He's got great handle for being 6'5". And... So the question is, can he continue to build out the jump shot a little bit? Is he going to kind of be, you know, offensively an Ish Smith type where, yeah, he's got some pick and roll skills, but he can't really shoot the three or or the jump shot that well uh, from deep to where, you know, you can just go under on him every time. Or is he going to be able to continue to take steps forward as a shooter? He's finally actually has rejoined Magic Camp now uh, due to a purported personal absence. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, this was hopefully some time for him to continue to rediscover his jump shot. Um, You know, all that said, this is one thing that I mentioned was even if the jump shot had been as advertised, you know, I still don't think he would have been a superstar. He's not 
quite as dynamic getting to the basket he's okay but he's not just like ridiculous off the dribble or getting to the basket the way I thought he was going to be coming out of school so there's still even if the jump shot does come around a little bit more you know I don't think I see stardom in his future but I think he could be an adequate point guard he's got good size defensively as well you know I think he's really taken some steps forward there certainly from his college days where he was atrocious um anything else to say on him well just mention Fultz's extension eligible I think it's almost impossible to figure out a reasonable extension with him with so much uncertainty about where his game goes and also remember Orlando probably isn't going to be a cap space team in 21 so they can just see where things go and if Fultz is awesome and somebody wants to pay him so be it yeah I mean he will have a massive cap uh, oh you mean 30 30.7 million is a massive cap hold <laughs> Turn to Mo Bamba now in his age 21 season. Uh, and, you know, Bamba, again, he was one of the worst players as a rotation guy in the NBA last year. Their season completely turned around when he got injured and, and they went back to Kem Birch uh, as uh, their backup center. And Birch was way better than him this year. Birch took a step back as well. We'll talk about him. But Bamba, this was, am I like super high on him right now? No, but I think he took very meaningful steps forward, uh, particularly defensively this year. Absolutely. And I mean, he improved as a shot blocker, as a rebounder. And I mean, you, you could point to the kind of the, the box score stats and some of that stuff. But also, like, you just you just saw it. He just looked more capable. Opponents didn't shoot very well when he was around the basket. And he, you know, still jumps a little bit more than I like. You know, the, I, I, as as a smaller guy, I always think about, like, tell try to uh, tell big guys, like, rely on your size. And just like, well, Baba can block shots without having to commit. He can commit a lot later. Tim Duncan is probably the prototypical example of that. And but there's still a lot more a lot more to like there. And he was just he was capable as a backup center defensively on the magic, which was important. Yeah, it was mostly a lay, laying back in pick and roll. You know, I think there was a hope that he could be mobile enough to switch when he came out and that I didn't see that at the time others did see that so I uh I think I've been vindicated in that so far where he has not had the type of ability to really get out on the floor every once in a while he'll, he'll do it but certainly not as a switch guy more in just a conventional aggressive pick and roll defense but largely he's just laying back uh giving up a lot in the mid-range in pick and roll you know that's a, a Steve Clifford staple of course when guards do attack him at the basket the numbers were relatively good uh you know only 0.8 points per possession as guards uh, would try to score on him at the rim that was a, a pretty good number per synergy uh the numbers were not as good in the mid-range because again he's laying way back and if he did try to get up a little bit higher to take away the mid-range he could get blown by um i mean he's got that crazy seven nine wingspan so it, yeah the fact that he's able to finally block some shots get some defensive rebounds again that's another big clifford staple um you know he still goes a lot for shot flakes uh, and will foul um so you know i mean is he gonna be this is a step forward to competence defensively he's still not a crazy difference maker just to, due to the lack of feel it just, he's that doesn't have great timing as a shot blocker he's got great tools but not great timing and not great help instincts you still don't see a ton of verticality plays of him just forcing guys to miss and you know the lack of mobility and just overall you don't see him play hard you know just the, there's not effort plays that stand out from him in the way that you know a young Rudy Gobert did where Rudy really was running the floor hard he was he was playing really hard um and then offensively uh, what did you see uh, from Bamba this year the positive that 
those can, that those who want to see more there can cling to is that Bamba made a lot more of his threes. So he he was 36% on 4.3 per 36 minutes, which for a true center is not bad. I mean, you could see it kick up a little bit if they keep going yeah. in. And he's, he was aggressive with that shot yeah. out there. Unfortunately, he was less aggressive getting to the basket, getting fouled, um, fewer than two free throws per 36 minutes, and dropped from 79% made field goals in the restricted area down to 68. 68's not terrible, but you, you want it to be a little bit higher there. And then shot 13% of his attempts from floater range and only made 20% of those. Actually, 19 if we're, if we're going to round down. And Yeah, and, and a lot of those, I mean, he didn't take many of those, but, you know, to the extent that he ever tried to post up, I mean, he is just hilariously Yeah, like some of those, like, I call we call it floater range. This came up with, with, um, with PJ and Miles Bridges. Like, a lot of those aren't floaters for Bamba. They're just, he can't move a guy when he's posting them up, so he's shooting from floater range. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of like a Kristaps Porzingis who can't shoot in the post. <laughs> like, it's it's really bad. He was 3 out of 12 with 5 turnovers on 17 post-up possessions. And important to remember, like, they're not throwing him the ball in the post against the center. Like, the only re- reason you're going to throw him the ball in the post is if he has some big mismatch. And, uh, yeah, so so that was really bad for sure. You know, I do have some hope for the for the jump shot. I don't see him getting to, like, a 40% level. But, uh, you know, at least that gives him something to do offensively. But he really, and he, you know, he still kind of jumps sideways on, a, on his jump shot. It's a little weird, but... Uh, well, and oh, the other part effective. of this, like, so why I would put a smaller player on Bamba is if if you depending on how you can do it personnel wise, because presumably the Magic or whoever are going to have another another player on the floor who could shoot less. Is he is such a terrible screener? Like, I mean, you don't have to worry about oh, what what happens if that guy has to get scrambled and caught or something like that. It's not going to be a problem. Well, well, I mean, maybe that's a reason to not do that because you could just lay your center back. I guess and that's he's just true. Never going to make contact on, on the screen. And yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, just other than just standing there and shooting he is atrocious at everything else offensively he's uh grabbed a couple zero offensive ability. rebounds i'll say that yeah yeah every once in a while you can get but he's not even really like that great of an alley-oop threat in pick and roll i mean he is probably one of the worst pick and roll centers in the nba uh pick and roll roll man 14th percentile and you know pick and pop was like okay ish but as a role man, I mean, his hands are really bad. He's got no feel for making any kind of a play on the move. Uh, you know, again, he's not, you know, a huge alley-oop threat. Um, you know, you throw it right at the rim, he'll go get it. But he, he's not going to just like, he doesn't have a huge catch radius. And then similarly, out of pick and pop, you know, he can't do anything against a closeout. Like if you throw it to him and he doesn't have the shot right away, like your possession is just kind of dead for a time until someone can come up there and get the ball from him. And so yeah, no drive game and no pump and drive game whatsoever. Um, we mentioned that his terrible screening, you know, he doesn't ever like slip the pick and get to the rim. He doesn't change the ankle. He doesn't make contact. It, just every time he set the screen, the guy was just able to get over it very easily. So um, he, he's really, uh, despite that shooting ability, I mean, you'd think like, hey man, protects the rim, shoot the ball. Like that's pretty good, but he's just so limited every other way, particularly offensively. And, you know, you just see, oh, three point percentage and block block percentage. Wow, that's great. But those are like the only two things that he does well. So I'm not going to say that he can't evolve still, but just the lack of feel. And then also just the, you just don't see him playing that hard. Like he's got to just play harder, I think is the other part of it to really make a difference. Right. And I don't want to do a full comparison, but remember it was less than two years ago, or actually almost exactly two years ago, that five bigs were taken in the first seven picks of the NBA draft. Aiton, Bagley, Jaron Jackson, who I haven't done yet, Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter. You know, various levels of success for all those guys. 
guys? The two non-bigs taken, Luca and Trey. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's not to say that the the big, the the smalls who were not taken by those, like the next ones were, the next non-bigs were Sexton, Knox, and Mikhail Bridges. It's not like those guys are necessarily setting the world on fire. But like, yeah, with Bamba, I I will say, I I think his his defensive rebounding has also improved a little bit for me. Um, I, I, you know, but not still not great. Like, you know, it's it's not at the level where you're super excited. Remember, he's mostly going against backups. It's not like he's having to go against the beefier the beefier players that sometimes still start, you know, like the Valanchunases of the world. Um so with Bamba, yeah, I, I'm still I'm still gonna give him a high development score of a seven, just because he was so bad last year. But my confidence that he becomes like a long term starter is lower than it was when he was drafted, and my confidence that he can be an above average starting center is meaningfully lower than when he was drafted. Let's hit briefly on West of Windows. To age 25 season uh, out of Kansas State. The appeal there was, you know, he was in that 6'6, 6'7 range. It has some ball handling ability, but due to his limited skill level, he hasn't really been able to translate that into anything. He did take a little bit of a step forward as a shooter. I mean, just watching him, he was not passing up shots quite as much, but still, you know, three threes per 36 minutes and uh you know not really able to get to the rim that much i think he's a quality defensive option a little thin but you know he started at small forward a, a fair amount with isaac out as they move aaron gordon to power forward uh, and so I, as a defensive option i think he, he's a just fine uh, but offensively it really doesn't have you know he's low usage low efficiency and he's not that much of a difference maker defensively to have those type of numbers so and he's, he is he's not yeah and he's more of a solid defender than a playmaker which can be fine right I mean, you can have that you can have some of those guys in your rotation and like Uundu, if he's not making a ton of money and i think he's going to be ridiculously squeezed by this market as a restricted free agent then sure you can have him in your rotation but i don't see especially this was his age 25 season i don't really see like starter upside there i see him as you know he can be your be your ninth or tenth guy be your like number four rotation player on the on the kind of the forward line and that's fine there's there's no shame yeah in that. i think he's even worse than that i actually i mean i think he seems like more like a fifth wing to me okay um it just it, like he's he's just pressed into service because they don't have anyone else also true me. um oh and so development rating for him i'd give him still like a six because yeah. he has improved his shooting bomba god wait we keep forgetting i i, I gave him a seven i gave bomba seven ahead oh okay um yeah i think i'd be right there with bomba as well just because he was so bad last year and he actually you know their bench unit did some stuff this year and, and he was at least didn't prevent that from happening um kem birch he took a real step back here um and and you noted this that only 44 percent of his shots are in the restricted area and uh he can't make any shots outside the restricted area that was a problem but you know his other issue is just that he had to play a lot of power forward this year yes. i mean hilarious that the magic had three starting level of power forwards we thought at the start of this year two of whom started together uh but gordon and isaac and Alfred Camino all uh, missed time at one point or another. So Birch had to play power forward a lot. And, you know, with Bamba emerging, he, the organization's obviously more invested in him. So, uh, you know, he didn't play as well, but he also wasn't really put in position to succeed. But, you know, some of his numbers were absolutely really rough uh, in terms of just the on-off metrics. So Yeah, and, and some of that, though, is the offensive difference between a Vooch-included starting five and a much more limited second unit. But Yeah, but 53% shooting for that player type on 
9.3 usage. I mean, that just sucks. Like, it does. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would have to give him like a 2 in terms of his development rating. Yeah, and some of that was, you know, he, I mean, he looked a lot better in contrast with Mobamba last year as one of, Mobamba was one of the most negative players in the league last year. And so, Bert, but Birch also was put in a, I, it's it's an example of why the situation you're put in, for, especially for limited players, matters even more. And, and Birch, age 27, he's already has a guaranteed 3 million for next year. And that, that that's fine for a, you know, like a, a utility big, but the idea that they were getting a steal where he's a clear backup caliber player for that money, I'm less confident in that, obviously, now. We can close here by, I just have to briefly mention Melvin Frazier, who only played 51 minutes this year, nearly all of it in garbage time. He's drafted in the mid-30s and had pretty good athleticism out of Tulane. That's probably why I have to talk about him. But, um, you know, it looks like he's uh, not long for the NBA. Yeah, he struggled with injuries, but he doesn't play hard enough. He doesn't shoot it. The thought was he could be a, a solid combo forward with his athleticism. Well, but, it, yeah, I mean, he's, he, he may need to go play in Europe for a while. And maybe he could reestablish his career there. Well, something to bring up with Frazier is he actually put up some solid numbers in the G League this year. Played played 850 minutes there and had 61% true shooting on 21 usage. But if he was better, they needed players on the big squad at forward. So he, if he had if he had been good enough to play for Orlando, then he would have been playing in Orlando instead of playing for the the Lakeland. They're the Lakeland, Lakeland Magic. Magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is age 23 season. So I mean, that's good that he actually. I, I had not looked at his G League numbers. Um, you know, seeing him in summer league, it didn't look particularly good either. But uh, all right, I think we can uh, call it quits here. One thing I can mention is we are scheduled to be on the NBA's Twitch channel. We're going to go back and look at some of the matchups between teams that are playing in the bubble, some of the key games, and try to look at some stretches from those games, see what we can take away from those as we begin to preview that. So that's going to be, as of now, 12 Eastern, 9 Pacific a.m., 12 Eastern, I guess it would be p.m., noon, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific on Wednesday. So that's that's going to be a lot of fun to be on the NBA's Twitch channel. And actually, it'll all be in that same window as we're calling the game and talking about it. So that's fun. That's a big step forward for us. We're going to have the NBA cast going forward as well here. Um, we'll come out with the schedule on that relatively soon. we got to go over it. But and we're going to be doing a ton of games once this starts because, uh, hey, basketball is back. we got to celebrate that, that fact. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, watch some games with us. It's going to be fantastic maybe we'll even do uh some preseason games hmm. oh baby or scrimmages whether you want to call them that um in this time coming up we're so desperate for nba basketball and uh hopefully y'all can join us we'll uh, talk to you next time till then at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.